Hi, my name is Ben Atkinson, founder of Functional Health Info and the Functional Health Podcast. I'm trained in both biomedical science and nutrition, and I believe that a holistic and functional approach to health is fundamental to our well-being. I've set out to find some of the leading voices in nutrition and lifestyle medicine, from practitioners to professors and everyone in between. With this podcast, I will share with you their stories, their expertise, and their advice, shedding light on the industry from each of their perspectives and providing you with simple tips and tricks to help improve your health from today. This week, I'm delighted to be speaking to Dr. Laura Quinton. Laura is a conventionally trained medical doctor and GP with further training in nutritional therapy. She currently works in an NHS clinic and private practice on Harley Street with a specialism in pregnancy planning, women's health and stress. A doctor with training in nutrition to this extent is very rare and I was so excited to speak about her integrated approach to health. I first met Laura through her work with Rick Miller and in this conversation we touch upon changing patients' diets, her thoughts on chemical toxicity and integrating nutrition into medical practice. So, without further ado, Laura, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ben. So just to dive straight in, as a medical doctor, when did your interest in nutrition begin? I mean, I've always been interested in complementary medicine and the mind-body connection. Um, But nutrition crept in gradually, really. Like everything, I think it starts with something that's happened to you yourself. So about 15 years ago, um, I was trying for my second baby and... um, I was a typical GP, you know, I thought my healthy lunch of a sandwich, a packet of crisps and a <laughs> diet drink was fine and, you know, just not sleeping well, stressing out. And um, my sister-in-law came to stay with me and she gave me a book called The 28-Day Detox and it was all about um, excluding things from the diet, adding things in and it was it was quite basic and it talked about gluten and um, so I thought, well, I'll give it a go. Think, and, and we would, you know, we were trying to tone up, and it was, yeah, I was trying to get pregnant. But I did this twenty-eight day detox with her. I know it's a really cheesy name, but um, actually, the way I felt really differently in myself. I had more energy. My skin cleared. Um, and I thought, wow, there's more to this nutrition than just sort of losing weight. And then I think having young children and I think that's another time in your life when you start getting interested in food and nutrition. And I became much more aware of what I was giving to my children. One of my children had eczema and I you know, started to do my own research and realised that what I fed her not only affected her skin, it affected her sleep, it affected her energy. And so then I spent many years doing research, reading, trying to do as much as I could, but in the background to my normal GP job, um, just you know you know just geeking out on my you know learning things myself really that's how it began it was a real gradual thing and you know seeing patients you know I I used to talk to them more about what they ate and I realized you know there were simple things you could do but I didn't have the sort of scientific knowledge or training but I just realized that it was such a big thing that that as a doctor I was sort of excluding it before and I thought this is crazy this is huge you know it makes such a difference how people feel was speaking to practitioners previously, the foundation of health 
and everything else builds up of that and sleep as well. And a lot of doctors now are becoming aware that nutrition plays such a fundamental role in not just helping disease states, but also preventing disease long term. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it was a sort of gradual process that it, you know, the nutrition I got taught at medical school, which is sort of 30 years ago now, but it was literally an hour on all the different types of vitamins. Yes. And then it's taken me the last 15 years. It sort of dawned on me. There's so much more to it. And it's, it is so fundamental, but as a doctor, it's just not on your mind normally. But I, I agree, it's becoming more popular now. But um, I think there's a lot that you can learn about it as well. When you study nutrition, mm-hmm. what made you decide to study naturopathic nutrition at the College of Naturopathic Medicine, or CNM? Um, well, it took me a while to find the right place. Um, I was looking into, you know, how do I study nutrition? And you know, I saw BSCs in nutrition. And when I was at med school, I did a BSc in psychology. So then my friend was studying nutrition. It seemed quite dry. And then I looked at this course. I thought, no, that's not the nutrition I want to learn because, you know, some my patients were getting frustrated with going to a dietitian. You know, they would get a diet sheet. It was all quite sort of dry and scientific. And I thought, yes. that's not what I want to do. I was looking around and um, there was actually a course I went to about five years ago. It was at the um, Royal Hospital for Integrated Medicine, mm-hmm. the, the formerly known the Royal Homeopathic Hospital. Yes. And they did a week's course for um, healthcare practitioners. And each half day was looking at a different form of complementary therapy. So one day we were sort of needling people, doing a bit of acupuncture. We did herbal medicine. Um, uh, we did hypnotherapy and then another day we looked at nutrition but this person that came to talk to us was talking about naturopathic nutrition I thought I didn't didn't know what that was I was started looking into it I was really interested and then it took me another couple of years actually to then come across the College of Naturopathic Medicine I thought this is the nutrition I'm interested in because it um, takes into account lifestyle it uses the the doctor really or the practitioner as a teacher and and it's really about adopting a lifestyle not just going on a diet and and then you know maybe dropping it but doing it in a different way and it and it was it resounded with me and and I loved it so and it was a course where I could go you know meet like-minded people I went into college one day a week there's a lot of work, you know, yes, being a GP imagine. with kids and being 50. And, <laughs> but, you know, it was something that I was really passionate about and I really, really enjoyed the course, yeah. So with the specialism now in female health and pregnancy, can you elaborate how nutrition is important for fetal development? I know this is a bit more specialised question. Um, well, yeah, I mean, it's it's absolutely fundamental because the baby relies on... The, it's building blocks from the mum. You know, the baby will take the calcium out of a mum's teeth. Um, you know, every, it, so it will all start the, the, the basics. You know that, and that's you know that's why I think women will often think about nutrition. They sort of have a wake up call. I'll, I'll know from personal experience when having babies or getting pregnant. That was a time in my life where I was interested. And I think it's quite a good time when you're seeing patients. It's a good opportunity to talk to them about what's important. And changing them to a, life, a, a, a sort of way of living and a way of eating, which isn't just for pregnancy, but it's really for life. And, and you, can, you can do a lot with patients at that time. So what kind of nutrition would you advocate for someone who is maybe during the gestational period? Mm-hmm. Is there certain foods that you would include or exclude? There's certain foods that I think 
you know, I mean, I think you have to have the basics of a healthy diet and a healthy gut, which includes a healthy microbiome and good bacteria in the gut. So I think you have to start with gut health. Um, and I think that's the same for everybody, whether they're trying to get pregnant or not. Um, but then pregnant women especially are going to, you know, need to make sure they've got good amounts of good omega-3, healthy fats. They have um, good quality proteins. They try and eliminate more toxic elements from the diet, you know. So if they're going to eat meat, it should be from a good source, organic preferably. Um, nutrition is so linked up with farming and the environment. And I think, you know, just awareness of where your food's coming from the calories that you take in aren't empty you know that, that they've got a nutritional value associated with them as well and then mm-hmm. you'll be looking at food that's not over processed and you know the general quality of your food and then you know there's certain obvious you know we look at things like folate in pregnant women we know that that if you you're lacking folate associated with neural tube defects in a baby so there are certain you know vitamins and minerals which are more important they're good guidelines on those i read recently uh, the dental diet by dr stephen lynn yeah he was talking about how your teeth and your oral microbiome is linked to your health in general Mm. and how kids nowadays due to nutrient deficiencies over Mm time our mandible and our jaw hasn't developed enough for us Mm -hmm. to have the correct teeth and mm-hmm. bone growth and a lot of people can't fit their wisdom teeth into the mouth mm-hmm. and i think he was speaking about vitamin k2 okay. as a primary example yep. for for development of the baby and yep yeah it's really important yeah yep. but like you said that'll be present in organic um grass-fed beef exactly. things of that nature yeah and you know whole foods and getting your leafy green vegetables i mean yes absolutely that's what i'll say to patients if you can just have one portion, you know, the size of your palm, leafy green vegetables, even if you do it five days out of seven and becoming aware of that, because sometimes I find patients, if they've got one thing to aim for, it's a lot easier. Um, but yeah, vitamin K2 is vital, and uh, but it goes hand in hand with, with the other fat-soluble vitamins, like vitamin D. You know, even the, you know, the government recommendations are for women to take vitamin D through pregnancy and breastfeeding, but not all women are aware of that. I mean, it's it's the basics aren't even sort of getting through to people out there so that we've got a long way to go i think but certainly we're moving towards the right direction definitely yeah definitely and i think the more doctors that are interested in nutrition and this sort of you know this lifestyle version of nutrition and working alongside other healthcare practitioners with the patients with the general population is so important and sharing the information. And Rongan had a really moving story about his son and a vitamin D deficiency. Mm-hmm. So for listeners, I'll link to that in the show notes. For people who are decided to have a baby, mm-hmm. is there any nutrients that you find um, help with fertility problems in men and women? I know the Western A. Price Foundation recommend a more nutrient-dense diet mm-hmm. preconception mm-hmm. and also prevent any toxic burden which may be present. Yeah, well, that's that's fundamental. I mean, I get most of... If I get a, a woman in to see me who, for a bit of pre-pregnancy advice, I'll always mention green cleaning because, <laughs> you know, changing products, having less harsh chemicals, starting with your home, it's really important. You know, we, we want to get the good fats into the diet, like omega-3, but I'm aware that we've also got one of the guidelines saying that women shouldn't really have more than two portions of large fish or you know tuna oily fish like that a week because of our concerns about mercury yes so we have to have the right balance um but i think getting those right having your vitamin d checked is so important as well um 
and that is quite an easy thing to do because I think it's good to know where you are on the spectrum if you've got vitamin d levels really really low you're going to have to really boost it up to make sure you've got adequate supplies for for the mum and baby when she's pregnant so sometimes some pre-pregnancy tests are quite valuable looking at iron sores you know while you're at it check the thyroid because I see so many women who are in that sort of subclinical hypothyroid zone which mm-hmm. you know you can you can do a couple of tweaks look at diet look at um, lifestyle factors and then optimize the woman you know a few months before she then goes on to get pregnant which is great but if you haven't got that opportunity or if a woman's struggling with you know as you mentioned infertility i mean i'm definitely seeing a lot more polycystic ovarian syndrome yes around. and endometriosis as well endometriosis which i mean some Traditional doctors don't like the idea of imbalance of hormones, you know, the estrogen progesterone. But I think from my experience and from what I've learned about, I think, you know, we live in a world now where we're exposed to much more of these xenoestrogens. Uh, Is that from things like plastics plastics, and uh, BPA on the inside of cans, etc.? Yeah, and, you know, even... We, we know they're there, but it, it's, it's filtering through. But, you know, the, the legislation is a bit slow. I mean, it's been banned. BPA's been banned in baby bottles and things. But it still would be out there in other, other products that women who are, you know, getting pregnant or are pregnant or breastfeeding will use because the legislation doesn't ban against that. You know, it's, I think, you know, there's a big catch-up in some of the environmental issues to sort of look at some of these effects on hormones in men and in women. Um, so are those xenoestrogens in food or are they on in, in skin products or, skin or, products, or things like that? Uh, the environment, um, anything that sort of mimics the way estrogen works in the body. Um, and, and again, with the polycystic ovarian syndrome, that's becoming, it's, you know, it's a variant, it's very aligned to metabolic syndrome and type 2 diabetes. And I'm seeing much more women who have got, you know, developing insulin resistance or, you know, they're having problems conceiving, they have problems with their periods and they're having cycles where they don't ovulate, they don't produce the progesterone in the second half of their cycle. And so they, their estrogen levels are relatively high compared to their progesterone. And I think it's, you know, you can do a lot of work with food and nutrition and lifestyle factors. As I said, traditional doctors don't like the term hormone balance, but I find... You know, but there is something to that. That's what I genuinely think and that's what I see. And I think that you can address these factors in women, you know, to help them conceive and to help them get pregnant. I think it's really important. People with mercury toxicity Mm -hmm. that come into your office or women or pregnant women, do mm-hmm. you tend to use detoxification methods? Um, I or? personally don't. Um, I think I think it's really difficult. to. I don't diagnose much mercury toxicity, but I would try and suggest lifestyle factors where women can reduce the risk of, of overload of mercury. I know some practitioners will test for mercury toxicity. Yes. Um, and and that they've, you know, there's a role for other people doing different things. But as a sort of traditional GP, it's not my forte, I would say. And I know some practitioners advocate having you know, people taking mercury fillings out in the mouth. Um, uh, you know, I'm not 
I've spoken to a lot of dentists about this and taken advice, and some of them say, you know, there's a bigger risk of having the mercury fillings removed than leaving them, um, and you have to do it in a very safe way. And I think it, there's a big cost as well to some patients to do that. And, uh, you know, you've got to balance up if, if that's not, you know, a, uh, an option for people, you know, in terms of expense or time or risk then you might be bringing that up. The mercury fillings will stay there, but then you've induced anxiety in them. Uh, you know, right. and, yes. I, and so I think, you know, you have to, to be quite careful the way you talk about mercury toxicity mm-hmm. um, and be, be what, you, what you can reasonably do with the patient who's sitting in front of you and doing the best that you can. Yeah, doing no harm. You know, that's yeah. the main thing. So are there any nutri- particular nutritional protocols that you commonly advocate um, the broad, the broad strokes that you know I'd advocate for everybody. You know, eating less processed food. I'm I will always talk to people about what they drink, and I don't mean alcohol, but I just look at their drinks through the day, because especially if they've got problems with insulin resistance or increased weight, you know, I'll be sort of checking how many lattes and cappuccinos they'll be drinking before we get onto the glasses of wine at night. You know, and you are what you drink as well as you are what you eat. Yes. And so I will, you know, have a quick scan through because people love to tell me about their breakfast, <laughs> but they forget to tell me about all the, you know, the, the drinks and the fizzy drinks are my big bugbear. You know, I've been going on about those for years. And I've got a thing about diet drinks as well because I think they give you the same um, response with your insulin as, as sugary drinks do. So my patients, I will bang on about those until... I, you know, until they stop drinking them in my <laughs> office, you know. Yeah. So they're the big, broad brush strokes, processed food and fizzy drinks and what you drink, definitely. Yes, I remember reading recently about the sweeteners in, yeah. in the current literature. They were talking about how they change the microbiome. Absolutely. And also the, the sweet sensation makes you crave sugar yep. anyway, even if there is no sugar yep. in that exactly. drink. Exactly. They have like the same said, effects. Yeah. yeah, and your insulin will rise and your body will expect food. You, you can initiate a stress response um, just by things which are fake sugars. You know, ultimately they're just they're making you think it's sweet just because they're not sugar they're still having the same effect in your body physiologically and psychologically so just don't bother with them yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. so just jumping back a little bit for, mm-hmm. for pregnant women or mothers which are breastfeeding for mm-hmm. example yeah. what drinks would you advocate for them to drink is it okay to have coffee and caffeine or oh caffeine's another sort of you know i really would talk about that on an individual basis depending on who's in front of me yes because i think there's a huge genetic variability in how people respond to caffeine so that's number one some people can go into sort of generalized anxiety disorder with one cup of coffee and some people i've got patients who can sort of manage four or five a day and still go to sleep soundly at night so there's a, a big individual difference but i think the general recommendation is women should be limiting coffee to one cup a day you know? right and a good quality i don't i don't like the instant processed coffee because there's lots of chemicals in those as well so mm. having a good you know good quality coffee if you're going to have one make sure it's a good one and then again is the preference organic i think just a good quality bean you know i'm i'm not I'm not high up there, you know, knowing all my different coffees because personally I'm not a coffee drinker. It yes. puts me into a state of anxiety, so I avoid <laughs> it. But um, I, I, there are, I believe there are certain brands that are better than others. And some of my uh, nutritional therapist colleagues are very good on knowing which ones 
in previous podcasts, mm-hmm. practitioners tend to focus on certain nutrients and foods, which may be common allergens for certain mm-hmm. people, and um, mm-hmm. with a focus primarily on gluten-containing grains and dairy. Mm-hmm. Um, are those allergens which you see quite often in your practice? It's re- allergy is really interesting because, um, I mean, you get the obvious IgE-mediated allergies, which you can pick up on blood tests, and then you get um, ones which aren't mediated by IgE intolerances intolerances you can't yeah you can't test for them and that's another bugbear because having a child who's had eczema which you know the allergy tests were well doctors either said no we don't test for them or you know the test has come back negative but you know as a parent you know commonly dairy is a big trigger but give the dairy you know the eczema flares up so it was pretty obvious to me as a mum um, but I see that a lot and I think you know patients will often have a threshold of what they can tolerate you know really commonly I'll see if they tip over their tolerance threshold which can change depending on whether they've been ill whether on if they're taking lots of painkillers if they're you know drinking a lot of alcohol their gut will there's this sort of a level of tolerance that somebody can manage and you tip them over the edge they'll end up with something and 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 that's the other thing i like to try and identify that with patients you know talk about what they eat a lot of how they feel and i say well have you been binging out on something recently and nine times out of ten there'll be something and and yet dairy and gluten are the big common ones but it's annoying because you know i've heard nutritional therapists criticized for saying oh they always cut out dairy and gluten with patients but that's because you know in the west we we eat fast you know so much more gluten than our bodies were designed to to manage yeah sometimes i see kids who'll have um you know toast for breakfast pasta for lunch pasta again for dinner big slice of bread we're eating these sort of gluten-based meals three or four times a day and then you go way over your level to tolerate it so it's just pulling it back a bit rather than saying oh it's an allergy and do you test positive or not it's this sort of spectrum of disorder yeah i remember speaking to rick miller recently and he he said that people with a leaky gut tend to present themselves with more food intolerances absolutely definitely and i see that and this idea of a leaky gut or a gut which can you know let particles through which can cause um, illnesses in the body I I get that sort of feel for patients when they have that if they're on um, you know lots of especially when they're on lots of painkillers like they're taking lots of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs Um, and so it creates a vicious circle because they end up very inflamed and you know they have a lot of conditions which end in itis you know showing their body's inflamed so they eat more non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs they might feel stressed they'll have more wine or they have more beer they have more alcohol in the system so you get this chronic inflammation i think that starts in the gut and and i and that's what i tend to see um and then you add something like an overload of gluten on top of that that's the bit you need to pull back from and i think i think rick yeah he he talks about that a lot and he's interested in that and this idea of a gut which is just overloaded really yes mm, it's very common with your naturopathic background and mm-hmm. adopting naturopathic principles uh, do you use them in your practice do you use various herbs nutrients or any other don't want to use the term unconventional mm-hmm. treatments mm-hmm. 
Um, do you utilize any of them in your practice? Well, you know, I'll always talk to patients about lifestyle. That's, you know, if I have enough time. Um, sometimes my NHS clinics are so busy, uh, 10 minutes a patient, that it's, it's, it's tricky. And that's why I think we, it's great to work alongside um, other healthcare practitioners who sometimes got more time to sort of do uh, coaching or motivational interviewing with patients. Um, I will give them suggestions if I think it's appropriate, if I think it sh- you know, should be on that person's radar and they might want to go and research about. Um, if it's outside of one of my nice guidelines you know my you know nhs you know the remits of an nhs gp i will say i've heard about this you know you can go and have a look into it yourself and decide there might not be evidence for it it's not in i'm pretty you know clear to patients it's not in the office guidelines for example um i you know i am quite a big fan because i've used them myself and i will you know friends and family have used them and patients I've suggested it to have reported well, but some of the adaptogenic herbs that you would use, you know, um, things like rhodiola, holy basil, um, ashwagandha, you know, and I, I will tell patients about these. And my absolute rule is do no harm. And if I think I'm going to do no harm, and this might actually benefit one of my patients, I will start to bring some of these ideas onto the table. And, and in my experience... Most of my patients are quite happy to have that information and, and and they quite welcome it. I've seen it used to good effect. Yeah. So since you study nutrition, have you come across any revelations in practice or conditions which you may not have had reverse or you may not have benefited with your, with your previous treatment mm-hmm. that you now can and you've seen much better outcomes? Studying naturopathic medicine and nutrition, it really heightened my awareness of medication and over medicalizing patients and so I will spend a lot of time doing medication reviews and trying to pare down um, medication especially painkillers there's so many patients they might register with me from a different GP or you know just come in and I'll review which medication they're taking and I've had patients where they've been on um, you know fentanyl patches cocodamol a non-steroidal you know like a list of about five different painkillers they've been to the pain clinic nothing's helped and I've slowly weaned them off these these medications try to increase antioxidants into the diet and these are you know these are patients that you know maybe don't have a lot of money to spare or maybe you know you would think oh you know they're never going to come off some of these really difficult addictive drugs and I've had really good success but again it's building that relationship up with patients um, I've got a great healthcare um, assistant at my NHS practice who will sort of help me just coach patients and give them that support. And, and they can do it, coming off some of these vast arrays of painkillers which weren't doing any good. And actually, the patient didn't even know why they were taking them in the first place. You know, they've just right. been added on, added on, added on. Yes. And all of a sudden, they're on five painkillers and still feeling rubbish and then having a multitude of side effects and that's where I think even doctors you don't need to be trained in naturopathic nutrition to do that but just having that idea of bringing in lifestyle factors and you know this I remember this particular patient I had that you know he even adopted meditation practice he's like doing 10 minutes a day and it really helped him and he he came off his five strong painkillers and you think well that's a good thing that is a good thing 
and and it can be done yes i think yeah. with anything like that a support network yeah. is vital yeah and um, but what you said there you're really empowering the patient which i think is so important as yeah, well absolutely yeah and i think the the way that some patients are so if they're, they're almost over medicalized they because sometimes i understand you know i'm a gp and i've sat in busy surgeries where and sometimes it is easier to write a prescription than to do something different but i think that trend i think it's really reversing now with doctors and gps and i think and this other wave of interest in lifestyle medicine and patients getting all this information like i've had patients come to me and say I've read about this painkiller. I don't want to be on this. You know, so that starts that whole thing. So then it makes it easier for you as a doctor. You don't have to prescribe. You can work with your patient who, you know, intelligent, educated people most of the time. And they just, they just you know, it's just access to that information for them. When they've got it, they want to do the right thing. Um, medicines have a time and a place. You know, I'm not saying don't prescribe because I've been... Myself and my family have been the beneficiary of many medications, but you know, on the whole, there's a lot of over-medication as well. I know you touched upon meditation there. Mm-hmm. Um, do you advocate any other holistic therapies in your practice, for, whether it be for stress management or otherwise? I know some practitioners recommend yoga or qigong mm-hmm. and, yeah. and other oh, yeah. breath work. I mean, it depends on my patient. I've had the most unlikely patients taking up yoga. I mean, you wouldn't believe the patients. You would say no, and you know, I've suggested it to them. And there's some really good free online YouTube yoga videos, and they come back reporting success. People that you wouldn't expect in a million years. So yeah, if they if they when the time is right, and I think they're open to that, you know, I will suggest. I love to suggest things that can work with the mind and the spirit as well as you know nutrition and sleep and everything but it's all wrapped up so yeah there's it's just a balance of everything definitely yeah absolutely it all comes down to this this lifestyle medicine idea and i think rongan identified the four pillars which i've mentioned countless times before Mm -hmm. you know stress sleep exercise and nutrition Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and what do you think of the lifestyle medicine movement and the functional medicine movement I think it's great. I think it, it's, I think it's just empowering patients. I think you know patients, the general public, they're just getting more information, and it's people can help themselves, and it's it's making doctors more aware of over prescribing, over medicalizing, over referring, and and it's sort of it's opening it up so where patients are part of the the the, the treatment program and and then but I think we with the next step we need to do is have more sort of healthcare practitioners that can work alongside doctors because doctors have a role and they've got their strengths and you know prescribing and ordering tests and diagnosing but I think there's a there's a part where as a doctor then you know you spending an hour with a patient trying to motivate them and changing you know their lifestyle habits sometimes I think working with other practitioners and I think that's what we need more in the NHS sort of health coaches or lifestyle coaches that can can work in a team with doctors and and nurse practitioners and nurses that can do it as a team I think as an individual I think that's a more difficult thing to accomplish I believe uh, Chris Cresser, who's mm-hmm. a functional medicine practitioner in the US, was yeah. was advocating the yeah. use of health coaches and things like that to yeah, really yeah. work with the patient on what they eat, how to live their life, even just food in the fridge. You know, what do you buy? Exactly. It's all good writing something on a piece of paper, yeah. but what sources, brands, where do you get the most sustainable or cheap or affordable produce? And I think you're right. 
you've got yeah. to think or approach it holistically and think of every different aspect which may potentially be a problem for that patient or yeah absolutely an obstacle for yeah. them to overcome that's right and and it's not just having you can give patients the knowledge but then you have to get the next step is getting them to to make the changes that will suit them I know we're coming up on time and um, I've just got a couple of questions to ask you mm-hmm. very quickly which I tend to ask everyone mm-hmm. with this kind of emerging model of lifestyle and functional medicine where do you see the future of medicine going in the next decade or, mm. or 20 years do you see people becoming aware or using nutritional therapists and um, do you see the NHS maybe p- using nutritional therapists in practice I hope so yeah I hope so I think I think it will I think um, I, I mean I'm even though I'm a bit older I'm a big fan of technology so I think apps and you know people keeping their own records of their own health in real time you know I have patients now coming because one like blood pressure test in my clinic is not going to tell you anything, but I have patients that record it at home, and some of them are really keen, and they'll put it on their phone and show me the graph. But that type of you know data collection, patients really being involved, and um, and doctors being there with this testing and diagnosis with the sympathetic attitude, but having this coaches so that you're working together. And I think, obviously, with the genetics and and understanding that and people's individual differences on on the way they react to drugs or the way they react to different nutrients in the diet, I think that will become massive as well. And, yes. And, and, but patients having their own sort of data that they carry around with them, I think that's how it will be, yeah. Is there any genetic testing that you recommend? I know there's 23 in me out. I, I've seen it. I think um, I think it's in its infancy. I yes. think some of the tests, you know, again, I don't want to send people down rabbit holes spending money when... You know, the priority might just be have a whole food diet and reduce processed food, in, you know, do the basics. I think they're great add-ons when people aren't getting better, especially with, with um, genetics for, you know, I talked about caffeine and the way people respond. Because obviously yes. as a geeky doctor interested in nutrition and lifestyle, I've had my own genetics done. So, you know, I, and I, I realize why I don't do well with caffeine and coffee. But, you know, there's interesting genetics into looking at vitamin D receptors and um, even the way, you know, methylation, I know that's a big area as well. And I think that's a very complex area. But I think it's quite interesting sometimes if people aren't getting better or there's a chronic problem that you can't get to the bottom of. I think there is a place sometimes to suggest looking at certain you know, SNPs, as they say, I'm sure your yeah, listeners single might... single nucleotide polymorphisms. Yeah, which I'm sure, you know, the general public are becoming more and more aware about, but I think it's still in its infancy at present, yeah. For listeners out there, mm-hmm. can you give three tips for them just to help change their life and improve their health? Okay, definitely move. Um, I'm not going to name the brand, but I since I put a certain thing on my wrist, I'm well aware of getting my 10,000 steps a day. So I think that's really useful. And again, you know, it's just getting that feedback as a as a patient to know what you're doing and to set yourself a goal. And I think it's a really, it's, you know, getting 10,000 steps it is doable. Even if you're busy with kids, you know, you've got no time, you've got time to do that. Um, I think vitamin D is really, really important. I, I would advocate getting a test to know where you are and get your vitamin D sorted out. And I would stick with the one portion of leafy green vegetables, the size of your hand. If you can do that, 
five days a week out of seven, then that's going to be great for your hormone metabolism, your gut, your fiber, your magnesium levels, all sorts of things. So I definitely stick with my leaf. Eat your greens, as my granny would say. And is that raw cooked? So let's just, just come clarify that. For just a get them in, just anywhere you want. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So we've got the technology mm-hmm. for monitoring your exercise. We've got leafy greens. Yeah, and testing your vitamin D. Testing your vitamin D. Yeah. Excellent. Dr. Laura Quinton, it's been a real pleasure to have you on the show. And I do hope we get to speak to you again sometime. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Functional Health Podcast. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Laura Quinton. You can find links to Laura's website and clinic in the show notes, as well as everything else that we discussed today. If you want to support the podcast, please subscribe and don't forget to check out the other episodes available in the series. I would love it if you got in touch on social media through Instagram and Twitter and let me know what you think. As always, thanks to Joss Aurelia for the editing and Alan Harper for his support. Thank you.